This episode of the No Film School podcast was brought to you by Elements, human-centered media storage. Check them out at elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of October 15th, 2020. I am Charles Hain. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And writer, Oakley Anderson-Moore. Hey now. We're going to be talking about Disney's new moves to change their entire business model. We're going to be talking about the gender pay gap in Hollywood and how it's not really changing. We're going to be talking about a crazy new uh, tripod head and in tech news, and I'm really excited to talk about this because it's actually an exciting tripod head, if you can believe that. That is a thing that exists, and this <laughs> is it. And uh, all of that, and deep cuts with our favorite theatrical screenings. Uh, all that this week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, so our first headline to talk about this week, everybody should know about, is... Disney has decided they want to become Netflix. So Disney has announced they are reorganizing their entire business model around streaming. Specifically, obviously, they own their own platform, Disney+. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into this. Disney+, Plus has been way more successful than they expected. They're already at 100 million subscribers. They were projecting... Uh, by 2024, they were hoping to hit 90 million subscribers in their projections. Although public projections and internal projections are different. But, like, that's what... You know, by all accounts, that's what they were telling their investors they were hoping for as they were launching this on internal sort of investor uh, advice when they were defending to their investors why they were spending so much money to get the rights to all their properties back or or really giving up money that other people were paying to license the content. And uh, 100 million is huge. I mean, Netflix is only at 180 million and Netflix has way more content. They have their originals, but they also have all sorts of other content they've licensed, whereas Disney Plus is just the originals. And in terms of sheer, just hours, Netflix has way more hours of original content. However, Disney, as, as Steve Jobs famously pointed out uh, 30 years ago, when he looked at the film industry, he realized the only real brand was Disney. Um, the only brand that had a significant meaning in the hearts of people outside the entertainment industry. Like, you know, growing up, I knew Universal and Warner Brothers, but I, they didn't mean anything to me. I didn't know where their lots were. I didn't know what the brand meant. I never thought like, oh, I want to see a Warner Brothers movie. I know I'm getting a Warner's experience. But Disney well, to is interject, a brand that has that, meaning. That used to be true. That used oh, yeah. to be true. And and I think that's part of like what, what, what has shifted in the industry. But there definitely was up until I think like the 50s or 60s, an absolute signature to each studio so that's just okay. an interesting universal thing. was horror and there were you monsters know. yeah yeah mg mgm was like the e-ticket it was like the biggest stars the biggest names and the biggest movies the, the, warner brothers e-ticket yeah sorry that really dated me it was the big tick it was the uh um what is the e-ticket so the e-ticket oh you you've never <laughs> been to disneyland okay so the e-ticket was back in the day speaking of disney disneyland had tickets for each ride and you would get a book of tickets and the best rides like the really valued rides 
were e-tickets and you only got a couple of those to budget and use, but you got plenty of like A, B, C, D. And the idea was like the e-ticket would mean that sort of like prized thing. So it was prestige. Let's put it that way. MGM was prestige. Warner was um, gangster crime noir. And uh, yeah, anyway. This is a weird sidetrack we're on. <laughs> I'd never, I, I just never heard that. But I mean, it's not a sidetrack. It's Disney information. But it's also sort of an amazing pivot for Disney to basically say, all right, guys, we're going all in on streaming. Obviously, theatrical is dead for at least another year in terms of revenue. Now, I'm one of the people who believes in the theatrical experience. Uh, I think that movie theaters will survive in some form because we, we all love it so much. But I also think that it is a smart move to say theatrical revenues are not going to be a way a studio survives until at least 22. So Disney is reorganizing around focusing purely on streaming and they're reshuffling their whole business with this in mind. And, you know, if you think about it, they're getting what it's $7 a month for Disney plus six ninety nine, a hundred million subscribers. You know, they're bringing it. That's just in re- gross revenue. They're bringing in 650, 700 million a month from Disney Plus. So it is obviously a revenue stream for them. Uh, They can certainly make a couple of TV shows and a couple of blockbuster movies every month off of that kind of revenue if they feel like it. I mean, there's server costs and stuff. It's not pure profit, but it's a smart model for them. And I think it says a lot for where uh, these sort of industry, the streaming wars are going that, you know, uh, Disney is now deciding that they want to be Netflix. Now, Netflix, of course, will still occasionally show movies in theaters and Amazon will occasionally show movies in theaters. So I don't think this means that you're never going to be able to take your kid to a new Pixar movie again, because I think they're still going to have like big prestige things they show in theaters. Um, But it is a major statement. It's a huge shift for Disney. Yeah, I, I, we have been talking about this in our podcast and in our community for a while now. And we've been talking about how we cover what Disney does sometimes because it's sort of like where the biggest fish swims, the wake kind of, we all kind of follow a little bit um, at every level. And seeing these major moves that Disney makes strategically has sort of dictated, sometimes it's a bellwether for the direction of the industry. But um, internally at No Film School, our editorial team discussed this story a lot because we wanted to make sure we didn't sensationalize what this meant. And there was some internal, just, I wouldn't say debate, but just back and forth on, is this the end of the theatrical model? Is it fair to say that? Are we overhyping that? And I kind of came down on the side of, I feel like it's not overstating it to say that it could be. Um, I don't think it's the complete end, and I don't think that we'll never, like you said, I think movies will come out in theaters, but I just think when you take it in stride with all that has happened, the model was struggle as we knew it, the model as we knew it. I think you're right, Charles, there will continue to be movies in theaters, but I think the way we knew it was different than the way it will be, pretty dramatically. And I think coronavirus was a big blow that came at a bad time, that accelerated the rate at which things were changing. It's interesting with Disney because Disney was the one that had the biggest, still had the biggest traditional releases like Avengers Endgame, 
right? Like they were the ones who were still doing these major releases that made sense to do um, in the old model. I think that it'll be really interesting to see what the new theatrical model looks like. It might be like limited release for a streamer. So, I mean, I have no idea, but I think it will continue. I'm fascinated to see how. And I'm curious to know from our world of our community what people think it'll be or what they hope it'll be or things like that. But it just makes so much sense. And and the precursor to this was when they announced that Soul, is that what it's called? Um, their next Pixar movie. They just announced suddenly were like, oh, it's just going to be streaming. And and Mulan, that was the other one. It was like, yeah. ah, it's just going to be streaming. Um, and I think Mulan was a we talked about it. It was a, um, you had to pay a premium to get Mulan, which a lot of people did. You paid an additional rate. So they're testing out how this model is going to work. Uh, and we've talked about that too. And like I said, like, well, if you've got a family of five, it's probably easier to rent it on Disney plus at home than to take five people to a theater. Right. But the biggest thing for me is Marvel. That's the thing that like is the, is such like a huge part of this. Yeah. What does it mean for Marvel? Like they've pushed back Black Widow and all these other movies. Like when are the big Marvel movies? Are they still going to do the big Marvel releases? Like, I don't know. You have thoughts, Oakley? You're a big, big Marvel fan. <laughs> Just joking. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't seen Mulan yet. Uh, whereas if it, if we hadn't been in a pandemic if it had been screening in theaters, I would have taken my teenage film students to see Mulan. Like yeah. for sure. They were all excited. And we had even signed up in advance. And then of course the everything came to be what it is, but I'm not going to probably stream it and watch it over zoom and our zoom meetings with them. So, <laughs> <laughs> which did cross my mind, but I just thought eh, it's not the same experience. And so I, you know, I think streaming is great if you are at home uh, with your family, but what if you want to watch things with people who you're not living with? You know, that's, yeah, that's the, that's that's where I'm just like, how's this going to work in the future? Because obviously the, the theatrical is the collective experience and, and, you know, honestly, obviously most of the content we're watching is not in theaters, but I hope that I hope to see how Disney pulls this off after the pandemic has sort of subsided Will they, you know, will this model be the one that lasts forever? And as we're alluding, well, yeah, you know. it's a good point. Like, I'm sure you you agree with this thought, Charles, but like, don't you feel like people are going to want to go to theaters after this is over? Like a lot. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so like, so like all this stuff that's changed, like maybe these mod these current business models are, are dying, like the way like an AMC, for example, works. But people are going to go buy tickets to go see movies once they can. I mean, I guarantee everyone's going to like want to do stuff like that. Like I can. So I just wonder what's going to fill the need. Right. But I mean, I think Disney is being businesslike and they're saying, you know, a lot of the chains won't survive. We don't know if Regal and AMC will be there. We don't know how many of the locations they're going to keep open. And, you know, I, I, I certainly don't think theatrical is going to go the way of opera anytime soon. But, like, <laughs> you can see opera in every major city in America. You can only just see it in one theater, right? There's a theater yeah. in Memphis that does opera. There's a there's probably a couple in Chicago that do opera. There is. I actually but, know somebody who's an opera singer in Chicago or was. Yeah. Not right now currently. 
but yeah, it exists. Minneapolis has one. I, I have a friend in LA who's very into opera who goes to, what is it, the Mark Taper downtown and yep. sees opera all the time. I actually don't have the name. I don't remember the name of the theater, but like, you know, I, I think Disney is seeing the possibility that, you know, old technologies only disappear. Old art forms never disappear. They just like get added to the mix. And, you know, you can still see a variety of ancient art forms in most major cities. And I suspect that Disney is seeing the possibility that we're going to have fewer theaters in the future. And so they can depend less on it in revenue, which is why Marvel is such an interesting part of this for me is for Disney to say, we're going streaming focused. Like that's our number one, even with their Marvel and star Wars content. Cause those are two brands in the Disney you know, Disney owns it all, right? So Disney, so the idea that like even Star Wars, although arguably the most successful Star Wars project of the last five years is a streaming project, The Mandalorian. It is the only it is the only Star Wars thing that everybody I know seems to like, and I've never witnessed two people at a party getting in an argument about. Everybody is like, "Hooray for Baby Yoda!" So it is a it is, yeah. You know. I was gonna I was gonna say they've they've shown they sh- with that one they were like. Everybody, there were all the Star Wars were, people have argued over these releases, but that streaming release everybody loves, right? So I mean, it does sort yeah. of seem like maybe that's evidence to them. But I want to pinpoint something you said, which is like the way art forms change, and it's why I keep trying to caveat saying theaters are dead by saying like theaters will exist in a new way. Just <laughs> like you know, you can still go read a book. I know a lot of people don't but you can totally read a novel. And like, there's still people who write novels and it's great. And, and I think that there's probably been many moments like, you know, uh, mediums have shifted their, their spot in the cultural landscape or formats have shifted, but they still thrive and exist. So you can serve a movie on a new platform, but let's talk about this as it affects a filmmaker, because I was acutely aware Around the time I became an adult, I would say, if you can call me even an adult at this point, that movies were, the the way movies were being shot was changing because a lot of filmmakers and studios were so aware that so many people were going to experience them at home. And now we're like light years past that. That was like 20 years ago. But 20 years ago, I remember seeing things like, for example, the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie in the theater. And I know... A lot of people love it. And I remember thinking like, you know, I just feel like they didn't shoot this big enough because I think they and like remember the Bourne movies when they came along, there was this focus on tight action. And like I I was very aware that like having grown up on older movies, even older than I like much older than I am, like classic movies, the idea of like big shots, wide angles, vistas, like because people really took advantage of the size of the screen because they knew that was the only way people were seeing the movie. And as that further and further shifted towards like, well, they're going to see it in the theater, but they're also, it's going to live forever at home. I think that the whole way the movie was made changed. And I think it continues to be like the way, how many times, how many close-ups? I'd love to see stats on this, but how many close-ups versus how many super wide angles or like super, uh, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think it does change the way people shoot movies. And in my opinion, not for the better, because I like the big wide look, but um, the visual grammar has shifted with the with the location that the movies will live, right? 
So we'll have to see, you know, with Marvel being a, a question mark in the films that haven't shot yet that that would have been originally planned for theatrical, how does their aesthetic change? Yeah, I was going to say it's going to be a different movie. Even if it's even if yes. you get to see it in a theater, when you design it with streaming first in mind, you do the effects differently, you do the staging differently, you're blocking differently on set, you're writing different like everything is different. You know, it used to be in a little bit of film nerd trivia, there used to be when you would get depth of field charts. So back in the day before we had phones, you had to get these paper charts to tell you like the depth of fields of your lenses um, at different focus, at different field of views and different focuses and apertures, what the depth of field was. And it always came in two resolutions. And the two resolutions were more or less TV or theater because in a theater, the image is so much bigger and so much clearer that it, that you had less focus because you couldn't tell you could tell more easily when something was out of focus. Mm. And a theater screen and a TV screen were so different in size. I mean, these depth of field charts I'm talking about are 70s and 80s. So a theater 50 foot screen, a TV, a 28 inch square at home, noticeably different images. So literally, working as a DP, you were using a different set of depth of field charts if you were finishing theatrically than if you were finishing for home. You were doing the very math about what you decided was in focus and out of focus differently. Because on our 28-inch screen, that standard definition, more things appear to be in focus because the whole image is so low resolution. You can't even tell when something's out of focus unless it's really out of focus. You know so that it's was just like... You know what's funny yeah. about that? And I just want to point it out because I love... talk. Now that we're on this part of this topic, I love it. I people have always said things like, um, "Oh my God!" Like the original Star Trek, for example. If you're not familiar with, it, people are like, "God, it is so dated and campy looking." And like, sure, yeah, it's like 50 plus years, 70 years ago. I don't even know anymore, but it was a long time ago. But anybody who was alive at the time, like my parents, they would always say, "Like, oh, it was mind blowing." <laughs> like seeing that that on TV was mind blowing. And I think one of the reasons is that if we see it now. It's like the 4K transfer. Like, so whatever crummy prop they used and like soundstage and like, they didn't ever think people would see it that clearly. Like they thought most people were going to see it in black and white on a tiny little screen, like with, with where you wouldn't see any of the mistakes or the little like corners cut. Like, and I think that's an, like, you're pointing out like where it lives, like where people expect a piece of content to live and be seen impact so much of the decision making. And I'm curious to know, I'm sure there are people in our listener audience in the world, and maybe both of you who could tell me like, do you think that there's an interesting side by side on something like The Irishman versus um, Goodfellas, Casino, or even going further back, uh, Raging Bull, we're just like how a filmmaker like Scorsese changes the way he chooses to shoot things because I personally felt like The Irishman was a little bit more quote unquote made for TV. Like it just didn't feel like he was using the canvas in the same way, the size of the canvas. Am I wrong about that? Is that just in my mind or do you guys agree? Well, I have another theory on that as well, uh, which is the video tap changed the way we frame movies because I feel like uh, when you're not looking at the tap, you're just sitting next to the camera and you're picturing yourself sitting in a theater. Uh, and so you're, you're framing and you're staging and you're doing all this stuff, imagining it in a theater. 
you know, like I always like to sit like on the dolly next to the camera, sort of looking at the scene that way. And I feel like a lot of people, especially because a lot of video tech monitors are smaller, they're like 23 inches or they're like, you know, a seven inch on the camera or whatever. I feel like a lot of directors and I mean, you know, Scorsese can have the biggest monitor he wants, but, you know, on smaller productions, I feel like we changed the way we frame. And I feel like I was, you know, as video taps became more common, especially as we moved to better video taps with HD, because I, I started my career and we were mostly shooting film and the video tap was shitty. And so directors didn't worry about it because it was so shitty. Um, everybody wanted to be closer. Everybody wanted to fill the framework because you're looking at the seven inch frame and you're like, Ooh, I need to see more. I need to see more. And then you get to this, you know, you know, you get to your 50 inch movie and it's the, uh, you get to, you know, your, uh, your, you know, you're in a 50 foot screen in a theater and you're watching all of these super tech close-ups, and it's so disorienting and it's like born ultimatum. Uh, and I think that some of that is technically true. I mean, we're fighting it. The last project I directed, we brought a 50 inch screen out and it was such a pleasure to have a 50 inch screen. And I know more and more people are doing big screen on set and James Cameron, actually, when he did ghost of the deep on that boat, the 3d um, Titanic movie, not Titanic, but the movie he did exploring Titanic in 3d, um, he built a theater for uh, on the, on the boat, he built a theater so he could be watching takes in a theater because he wanted, you know, I mean, you're James Cameron. You get to do that. I think he also maybe did something like that on Avatar where I think on the stage there's a theater so that when he's watching it, he's watching it full size, which like, God bless you, James Cameron. Like yeah, it, we, we all would love that. And I think you can see some of that in the staging. Like actually, as I am thinking about it with Avatar, one of the things you can't say about Avatar is he is using the full palette of like it is a big, epic, widescreen kind of filmmaking with these big, breathtaking shots with characters small in frame in relation to a world. There are some close-ups, but I don't even – like I don't think of that movie as having really signature, like living in that close-up space that we associate so much with TV. So it is sort of an interesting thing to think about the way in which the final format we shoot in changes everything. And I mean this is leaving aside the ultimate – end point of this conversation which is the thing we talk about constantly on this podcast because it makes me smile with glee quibi because quibi yeah, you don't even know yeah. how it's going to be framed in the end right it's this weird cross it's, thing where it can shoot be it either horizontal two ways yeah yeah you're shooting yeah. it for a phone and you're shooting it both wide and the way no one intended at the same time <laughs> exactly so you know you see all these great behind the scenes shots of people with like phones on set like previewing the image on a phone in horizontal and vertical, or you're getting, you know, you're using the cross style viewfinder. So you have all that. So yeah, I mean, this is, this is a big crazy day for filmmakers. And the idea that I think most of the people working in the Marvel universe have had uh, one of the last luxuries left of being directors who got to feel like their work is going to be experienced theatrically, right? You're making Iron Man, you're making Avengers, you're making Ant-Man, you're making any of those movies. Everything else you work on, you know, okay, 99% of this life is on small screens and 1% of my audience is going to see it big. Working in Avengers was the last place where you really got to feel like, you know what, 90% of the audience is going to experience this big. And the idea that now Disney's going to say, nope, it's small first. That's our target. That's where it lives and theatrical is going to be a bonus cherry on top, I think is going to change the way a lot of people approach projects in a way that will change what they are. I don't know about the Irishman. I don't remember specifically the Irishman feeling smaller, um, but I do. I felt it was tighter. I, I you mean, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. 
I'm going to pitch you guys something. I'm going to pitch the whole audience something. This is something I've thought about a lot, and it's apropos to what we're talking about. I think it would be cool if there was a festival that was just called like true, like the film festival or the only film festival or the last film festival where you had to shoot film. You couldn't use a tap. You couldn't look at a monitor and it was only projected on film at the festival. And that was it. And you would go live and you would see it. Obviously this wouldn't work today, but you would just have that experience of that type of storytelling and it would eliminate those other variables. I'm not saying it's the way all movies should be made, but I think just like talking about like, you know, is there a book festival or there, of course there is, or like radio drama or like, it's just using an old medium in the old way and seeing how like stuff turns out that way. That's, that's something I would do. And this is also why I'd never get hired to direct anything. Cause I'd be like, yeah, I think we should shoot it on 35 in uh on location in a desert. And I don't want a video assist <laughs> and, <laughs> and all those things. I don't want a video assist and I don't want fil- I don't want anyone to ever be able to watch it on video. They can only watch it yes. in the theater on print. <laughs> yes. Exactly. No, it would be like only theaters where it's a print. I'm giving this is a note for Quentin Tarantino so you can be even more difficult cuz I could never get away with this but you could. Um just say like yeah, it can only be shown on film. It can't ever be on streaming or home video. Just be as difficult as possible and see see what happens. I'd go see it. I'd see it. <laughs> I, I, I like the idea of that festival. I but I feel like that festival would only work in New York or LA or London. Yeah, or totally, totally. Or like, hey, there may be some enterprising little community of filmmakers somewhere else who are like, let's get Super Eight and do this kind of thing that way. Just like play with the medium, you know. Like you could screen, you could find an old projector and you could shoot and you could cut it with yourselves, you know. So what? Film. What about sound in your festival? And, and how about sound in general to this conversation? Because we're speaking sort of directly to the aesthetic of visuals, but, but you know, the, the mix of sound in a theatrical experience is very different than home video. And, you know, if you, if you stream something that was made for theatrical, sometimes, and mixers are so talented, but uh, sometimes you can just tell it was mixed for theatrical in mind the first time around or, or recorded. I'm not exactly sure. I'd love to hear from like people listening who are more in the sound world, but you can, you know, you can sort of tell sometimes that a mix or that, that the sound design doesn't translate as well streaming. Would you guys think about the shifting dynamics of sound in this Disney go streaming? We had, no, you go first. You're, you're, no, I was going to say, I actually feel like sound is one of the last beautiful places where, because most sound people work in these beautiful five, one, you know, stages that they've, like all, you know, most people working in sound are at least a little bit engineering nerdy and they've been involved in designing their Atmos stage or whatever. I feel like they're still going to do stellar theatrically focused work, no matter, even if it's 0.5% of their audience gets to watch it in full immersive Atmos in the theater, they're still going to do it for that experience because, you know, when they are mixing the sound and doing the sound edit, they're in a space that replicates that. And, and they love it so much that why wouldn't they take it to the extreme? I do think sometimes, you know, I mean, this is a problem you, you start to notice, especially when you have kids. I do feel like often movies mixed for the theatrical experience are not necessarily ideal in many home theater yeah, setups. Exactly. And uh, it's, you know, a, a lot of filmmakers remix. A lot of filmmakers do mixes for both. And I think that's 
a really smart, savvy way to do it. I think that, you know, there are sort of like software plugins that will automatically downmix and whatever. But I do think if if a filmmaker has the time and the dedication, they should do the mix for both. But, you know, what, where this is going to come in is budgeting and scheduling. Probably not on an Avengers movie, but on a smaller movie, knowing that it's going to be streaming focused. You know, I think the the habit, habit previously would have been like, focus on your big five one first and then do your st- stereo down mix for home second. You know, spend a week on your five one and then a day on your stereo. I think the smarter move should now be spend a week on your stereo and then a couple of days sort of filling it out for the five one if you can only afford two weeks in the studio because, yeah, more people are going to be experiencing the stereo or doing a five one for home because people do have five one setups at home. Uh, although I think that that's, I don't know that many people with five one at home. I know you can do it, and I, I know a lot of nerds, and I know very few have taken the time. It's such a good question to bring it to Oakley because I hadn't thought about it for my fantasy film festival, but I do know I can tease this. We have an interview coming up, or with a couple of sound post sound people from Sony who have the prolific sound recordists or uh, post sound supervisors and editors, and it'll be on this podcast. Um, and I spoke to them and they were telling me about a cool new product that they're using. They were using at Sony because of the pandemic. They had to start mixing and doing the final mix downs and stuff from home. But it was impossible for them to get a sense through their headphones of with interfering sound of like what the experience would be like theatrically. So this really cool technology that was developed where they went into the Sony theater on the lot where they usually listen to the mixes to kind of see how it sounds in the theater. And, and they did this test of their ears, like, and they created headphones and a plug-in based on how it sounds in their ears in that space. So they could mix the sound at home, knowing exactly how it sounded to them in the theater. Does that make sense? You got to listen to it because it's so cool. And um, just like how the lengths they went to to try and make sure that they could mix the sound properly and edit it properly. But I would say that we always talk about it like people overlook the value, the importance of quality sound on every project. And I know, Charles, I know you, you probably know this too. At USC Film School, their first, of course you know this, one of the first projects you have to do without any sound. Like you have to... You have to work without sound initially to demonstrate that you're like, you can focus on your visuals and not get lost in what's going to happen in the dialogue and not muddle the two things together and then utilize them sort of separately. Um, but I, I, for the for my for my made up film festival, yeah, there would absolutely be sound um, and you would be able to record it because I don't think it's the same. <laughs> like Charles is saying, I don't think it's under the same like I don't think our sound is taking as big a hit in its transfer between theatrical and home. I'm sure a lot of sound people were rolling their eyes at me and saying, of course it is. <laughs> but, um, but I'm a, you know, I'm a Philistine and I don't, I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Elements Bolt is a groundbreaking storage solution offering up to 10 times the speed of an SSD based system designed to deliver amazing performance to every department in your facility from scanning to color grading, editing VFX and GFX elements. Bolt will put an end to stuttering playback, slow copying or proxy creation for offline editing. This flexible high speed storage platform can supercharge any professional post-production environment and even provides native avid bin locking functionality. 
Every Element system is jam-packed with amazing tools and features developed to help with day-to-day post-production tasks. The extremely intuitive user interface is designed with creative people in mind and can easily be used with little to no IT knowledge. Ready to boost your performance? Find out more at elements.tv bolt. So now I'm going to have to make the hardest transition of my podcasting career in that the next <laughs> subject, first off, sucks. Secondly, doesn't relate at all to what we were just talking about. And that other subject is not only do women get paid less in the film industry than men, this has been a huge news story for the last three years and shit's not fucking changing. So that is the next subject we are covering on the No Film School podcast this week, <laughs> the continuing I love that transition. (laughs) Thanks. I I came out okay at the end. Um, I appreciate that. The continuing pay gap in Hollywood. And specifically, what's really interesting, I thought about the story. um, Jason Hellerman wrote that up, right? Yep. Um, So uh, what was interesting to me about the – so we've got a story up on the site, nofilmschool.com, about the continuing pay gap that is uh, affecting the way – pay works in Hollywood. And one of the interesting things about it is looking at who has lost their jobs and who has been most affected by the coronavirus. And so it's sort of an interesting thing to look at the fact that uh, there has been some impact um, where, you know, the losses haven't always been equitable as well. One interesting thing in all of this was talking to the, you know, the, if you guys haven't seen crazy rich Asians, it's a pretty fun movie. Um, and the screenwriter of crazy rich Asians was offered, uh, it was a screenwriting team, a male and a female. And, uh, Adele Lim was the female and she was offered the sequel. And, uh, So it was her male co-writer. The male co-writer was offered a million dollars and she was offered a hundred thousand dollars. And so she said no. And the male screenwriter offered to split his million dollars with her. And she was like, no, it shouldn't cost you. It shouldn't. I I don't want to take money from other artists. I want the client, in this case, a studio to pay both of us properly. And so she walked away. And I thought it was, I mean, there's so many layers of this that's really interesting to me. Um, One is that it's still continuing for this long that like, Crazy Rich Asians was a huge movie and they wanted to bring the screenwriting back team back for the sequel. And it was a female centered movie and they're like all of these things that should have mitigated against this. And yet still for the sequel, they offered her one tenth what her writing partner was going to get is just so, so infuriating and insane. But the other thing I like about it is that she's public with all the numbers. I I say this a lot to my students. I say this a lot in the podcast. I think the idea that we shouldn't talk about what we get paid is bullshit. I think it is a a way in which powerful people are like, oh, you you don't talk about what you get paid because that's like, you know, not a thing. It's not polite to talk about it. But like that's how all of this pay disparity exists is people don't know what other people are making. And so there's this idea we shouldn't talk about it. Now, I think there is one place we shouldn't talk about it, which is California passed a law where employers aren't allowed to ask what you made at your last job. And I think that's a great law because that means that if you happened to start at a low salary at one job, you can end up getting a lower salary your whole career because every time the next employer, even if they budgeted 100000 they might offer only offer you eighty because you're making seventy at your current job, whereas they would offer someone else 
who is making 100 at their current job, 100, you should just get offered what they think the job is worth. If you're if a company is prepared to offer someone 100, they should just offer that person 100 even if they're only making 40 at their current job. If they're qualified and can do it, they should get that. So I, I do think it's good that California passed a law where you don't have to tell your current employer what you make. You're a potential future employer what you make because that's insane. Um, I, I I don't I think that should be illegal nationwide. When I got my current job, I was off. I was asked for my last two pay stubs, and I'm a I was freelance before I got my full time job, and so I had these two insanely huge freelance paychecks because I'd just done two weeks of full time color grading work, which pays more than being an academic. So I turned in, you know, but like you don't work every week as a full time colorist. Like I, I turned in pay stubs that would have been, you know, I would have made hundreds of thousands of dollars a year if I did that every day. I don't do that every day. I, you know, I just happened to have done that for two weeks straight. Um, but that, and you know, and, but I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm giving you pay stubs that mean nothing. Like I don't, and I don't even know why I have to give them to you in order to get this job offer. It's all crazy. However, Separate from that, everybody else should talk about money more and should be honest about what they're getting offered and what they're getting paid because, you know, that's that's how we get here. And I love that uh, the screenwriter was like, I was offered $100,000 and my partner was offered a million. I love that, like, those numbers are out there and people are being honest about it. And, like, there's no, you know, it's not an inherent meaning of value. It's just a exchange. I think it's great. And people should talk about it more. It's infuriating that this continues to be such a continuing thing, especially because, you know, there's that great thing. Uh, Peter Frampton didn't make any money on Frampton Comes Alive, right? And there's this famous thing in the um, music industry where no one ever makes any money on your first hit. So one hit wonders famously don't do well financially. It's your second hit where you make money because you have leverage after your first hit that gives that gets you a better deal on your second hit. And the music industry is fucked up. Um, but like film is a little bit like that too. A lot of times on your early projects, you don't make as much. She talked about how she, you know, she wrote crazy rotations because she was friends with the director and she's willing to do it for a low quote. But when you make a hit and you're brought back for a sequel is when they're supposed to throw money at you at bare minimum. That's when like, like you're coming back for the sequel. They want the team back together so that they can print more money again, please. And you know, they made a bunch of money off the first one, which was a hit. And it's just insulting at that point to be like, all right, let's get it all back for a sequel. All right, you two writers, we have a $1.1 million budget for screenwriting. Uh, how about a million to the dude? Like, <laughs> what? I think that, I think that, um, I don't want to defend any of this and I'm not trying to, but I do think that there's a couple things that happen. One is a lot of times the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, in that I think there's like a calculation made somewhere. And it's submitted and it's like, well, she made X on the last one, so she'll make X on this one. And that's the way we always do it. And it just gets submitted and there's no mind. There's no eyes watching. There's nobody making being smart about it. Not an excuse. I just am possibly explaining the why. The other thing that happens, and I think it happens all over the place, and we all have to do better to catch it, is that people will be locked in at where they come in. And then raises are are like incremental. So if someone comes in like you like you sort of outlined, if they come in with a certain number and that's what they make, their raises are going to get them up slower. And if someone else comes in at a different number and their raise, do you know what I mean? Like it's harder. Like employers don't, and, and this is across industries, they hand out raises at a certain percent annually. They don't make these big big jumps to try and 
uh, eliminate pay gaps, even if they should. But one thing I always did on set at, at the scale of productions I often worked on, and many times when there weren't unions um, for certain sections of our crews, was just a most favored nations, which is like everybody gets the same thing at, at each level. Like every key of a department will make the same. Every person within a department, every like, uh, like you know, your key grip's going to get the same as the gaffer and your electric's going to get the same. Every electric will get the same as every grip and every art department and like except the production designer and, you know, the keys will all make the same, like at levels. Um, and I did it with, with cast. Like, you know, you could negotiate points, but everybody would get the same minimum if we were doing the SAG, you know, way, uh, low budget minimum or whatever. Um, and that way there is no gap because everybody's, you know, in the same place. Um, and I would recommend approaching it that way to others because then you can be fair. For a lot of people and, you know, being this, writing the sequel to Crazy Rich Asians or, or being an actor, actress in a big Hollywood picture, um, you know, that's very like <laughs> rarefied territory, but it's happening, you know, this is happening all the way through all the different veins of filmmaking. And yes. I would, you know, I can't speak to the, to that rarefied segment, but, um, but what happened, you know, but for those of us who are sort of making video for hire or we're working as a crew on something or whatnot, I think it would be really um, useful for that kind of transparency for more of this kind of transparency at the lower levels, because, you know, what I see a lot happening is, is that, you know, we just don't exactly know mu how much to charge and because in filmmaking it is subjective. And yes, sometimes if you don't have that much experience, you don't charge as much as other people. But I'd love to see something with more transparency about for those of us who are making a living, either creating videos or playing some other part of the role on a crew creating videos, what we should be asking and charging. I think that would go a long way towards those of us who are making a living not in the Hollywood system, but elsewhere to, 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 you know, to figure out what the hell everyone else is charging to, to sort of like be able to do this. Because for me, I feel like I, I do talk to like lots of women who are starting out. And the thing that I learned the hard way is like, don't work for free and feel free to charge more. And even something I'm still constantly reminded is don't give like a client, um, I mean, you, I, I, it's obviously all subjective, but don't give a client like, yes, I'll make this for $1,000, which you can, except then you find out uh, they want like a million new edits that you didn't write into your contract, or maybe you didn't even have a contract or all these nuances. And you're like, you know what? I should have just said $100 an hour. And if you go past two edits, then it's going to cost you type thing. And like, I'd love to see, I feel like this would really help a lot of us who are, who are making our bread and butter doing stuff. And for women... It would be cool to sort of, you know, get more transparency. So can we do like a working document on No Film School where we just have people tell us what they charge and then everyone can get a reference uh, something when they're like, give me a quote and like, okay, let me look up the No Film School list. Uh, oh, yeah. Oakley That's says a she great idea. 
So I'll give you some good news, which is that there's an amazing organization called the Blue Collar Post Collective, which is a it's a Facebook group, but they do some other things. They have in-person meetings. If you work in post, you should join the Blue Collar Post Collective. They're great. And they do a yearly salary survey. And what's great is they track it for regions because you're going to get a different rate as an editor in New York or LA than you are in St. Louis. And so they wait it for that and they can tell you here's what top editors and entry-level editors and assistant editors are getting across the board. I think something like that for no film school that's like all of the crew positions I would be really useful. It's going to be um, most useful for like the day rate or hourly positions. It's going to be really hard for the like bidding on a job, like bidding on a full commercial thing. But I do think that like learning those skills of laying out in your deal memo, like how many revisions you get. And like one of the most powerful things I figured out really early on was like, not only how many revisions you get, but how long they get to give notes. Cause <laughs> you know, my first couple jobs I would send in a cut and then like three weeks later, they'd finally respond. And I was like, where have you been for the last three weeks? Like, oh my God, I remember this one time we had a deadline and we rushed to meet the deadline and we sent it in for the deadline. And then we found out the client was on vacation on an island in the Caribbean with no internet for three <laughs> weeks. Uh, and we were like, then why Why was that the deadline? Why did we have to get it to you by this? Like, why did we rush and break our backs to deliver? Like, And then we didn't hear notes back until a week after they got back from this Caribbean island. Um, which like good for them. That sounds like a great vacation, but like it affected us. So yeah, all of that stuff I think is, is really powerful for, um, filmmakers to learn and, uh, specifically like, but also if you're in a position where you are paying money to people with every decision you make about who you are paying what, you should stop for a second and think, is this racist? And is this sexist? Like just for a second. Just like, just <laughs> good just point. Wait a second. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's 2020. We're all, you know, I, I'm, you know, I've been on the production company side so often where I'm trying to save money, where I have $50,000 to make a commercial and I know that they want a ring of fire and I know that they want like a drone sequence and I know that they want like all of these, uh, you know, like nine actors to be in it and bought out. And I know that I'm looking at my budget and I'm like, where can I save? So of course the habit is always... Like, I totally understand the instinct that whoever had of like, oh, well, this person's junior, so they'll take less money. I totally get that. But I also think that you, we should all just slow down and take a moment and be like, uh, can I pay people fairly? Yeah. All right. I think we should move on to tech news. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So in, in tech news, I actually I, I gave this a tease at the beginning. Sackler has come out with a brand new tripod head, the Active or the Active. There's no E at the end, so I think it's supposed to be Active. And uh, I'll find out soon when I watch some videos about it. And holy shit, they've rethought some things about the tripod head that make me actively excited. And like all of you guys are thinking, how can you get that excited about a tripod head? First off, if you've ever really seen a beautiful shot in a in a movie with like a really nice camera move, a tripod head was involved, right? Often a gear head or some sort of remote head. But like, you know, I don't have the budget to own a gear head. I've only ever owned fluid heads. I rent a gear head whenever I have a camera that needs it. But like a nice fluid head that lets you get a nice little pan or a nice little tilt, it's an essential thing. And when you have a nice head, it goes a long way. However, um, we're not specifically talking about some refinements with the Active with um, the way the pan and tilt works. Pan and tilt, you know, they're always continuing to refine them. And, you know, there's like seven steps of fluid adjustment. And I'm sure that, the, 
they're very beautiful. No, what Sackler rethought here is how we work with the head. Specifically, on you know, when I started my career 20 years ago, you had a tripod, you took it out, and if you moved it off the sticks, you were putting it onto a dolly or you were putting it onto um, maybe like a hi-hat or a low-hat. But nowadays, it's different. You're going back and forth between all of these setups now. You're going back and forth dolly to sticks, and you're going to slider more often. And there's this little secret about sliders. Most tripods have a ball head at the bottom, which means it's shaped like a ball, makes it really fast to level. And... Most sliders are flat mount, right? Not all, but most, especially like the the more affordable ones. Um, all of the promotional photos here have like the SERP Magic Carpet Pro, which is a nice like $1,500 slider, beautiful slider, counterweighted, re- does really nice stuff. We have a review up on No Film School. I like that slider, but it's flat mount. So like when I've used those, I have a Tackler Ace head uh, that I use for um, like much smaller camera stuff, like Fuji X-H1 stuff. And moving it back and forth to a slider is really annoying. It just is because you have to use this big adapter to get it to go into flat mount. And Sackler was like, wait a minute, can we just make it really fast to move the head around? And it's one of those things where I'm like, why is, why did people not already think about this already? So there's a, it's a, it's a, it's both a ball mount and a flat mount and it quick releases off to get to flat mount. So you can put it on a slider and it's like, oh, Sackler, this is great. Like you are talking to users in the field. It's going to be faster to go back and forth between tripod and slider. And when you're running and gunning and shooting a bunch of stuff and you want to get a bunch of those shots, this speed change is huge. Also, and this sounds ridiculous, but I love it. To level the tripod head before on a ball mount, you had to like reach, you had to like bend over and reach down under the tripod and then like reach up and grab this knob. And now they've given you a whole separate like flip switch up by the camera. So you don't have to like bend over, possibly, you know, like, uh, you know, stretching out your pants or whatever, or you, know, <laughs> you, you can like, you can, you can just stand there next to your camera, flip up the thing, level the tripod and flip it back down. And I'm like, why isn't it's, it's two of those innovations where I'm like, oh, in five years, every tripod will have this. And it's so nice to see them finally here in 2020. And, um, you know, it's, av- it's available in a variety of weights. There's the six, the eight, and the 10. The six and the eight are both 75 millimeter balls. The 10 is a hundred millimeter ball. Um, you know, they're not cheap. The, the, you know, they're in the like 1500 to $2,000 range. But as I always remind people, you know, uh, every once in a while, someone I know will get like a $10,000 gear grant or a $20,000 gear grant because there are grants out there often like small business grants or whatever. And they always want to spend the whole thing on their camera. And I always <laughs> say, you should expect to spend... Like put half the money on the camera body and put the rest into like lenses, accessories, and a tripod. And like your tripod should cost, often I am shooting with tripods that cost as much as the camera. Because, you know. Wow. You, oh, yeah, totally. Like, you know, uh, uh, an O'Connor 2575 is a $12,000 head. And I've definitely done jobs with that with like a $10,000 camera. Um, but the 2575 is a beautiful head and you get these beautiful fluid moves out of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you should be prepared because also remember a good tripod, you can get 10, 15 years out of it, which you're never going to get out of a camera. And if it's giving you these big, beautiful, smooth moves, I think it's well worth considering. So is it, it's more of a rental item. Than it- I don't know if it's a rental item for a lot of people. I mean, you know, this is a lot of money for a tripod, but I think if you're a working filmmaker who is out there all the time shooting regularly, I don't think $1,200 is a lot for a tripod head. I think that it is a, like, 
you know, I've never bought a 2575 because those are $10,000 and I'm never going to have the money to buy one of those. I rent those when I'm using the big cameras that need it. Or even the 1060 by O'Connor. I think those are like six grand. I've never bought one of those. But I think a $1,200 tripod head is a very, like, is an investment that actually, I would guess a lot of our readers have considered that investment at some point or another because, every, you know, if you're shooting regularly, if you're out doing corporate work, if you're out regularly shooting things, you need a good head underneath your camera. Um, I also think it's just exciting because a lot of this tech will probably trickle down into the more affordable Ace line. You know, I, I personally own a Sackler Ace. <laughs> um, Sackler Ace is very similar to the the bigger Sackler. It's just more plastic parts and less metal parts. But I've had my Sackler Ace for four years and it treats me just fine. And <clears throat> it was very affordable. So I think we'll see some of these features trickle down and that'll be nice. And I think we'll start to see more... Um, of these features in some competitors soon. It's just one of those moments where somebody comes out with something and you're like, yeah, those are the, that's the features we were looking for. Well done. <laughs> that's cool. awesome. All right. Deep cuts, theatrical movie experiences. Uh, I can go first. If, sure. if, if that's all right. So we were talking a lot about drive-ins recently and my wife and I, for our anniversary, uh, our, our in-laws, um, who are regularly tested, and my wife and I are regularly tested, our in-laws watched our daughter, and we went to a drive-in movie out on Long Island, and <laughs> it was an amazing theatrical experience, and it was the first time uh, in months where, you know that great experience where a movie ends and you're like, holy shit, what? The movie just ended? Where you're so <laughs> immersed in the movie, it just, you know, which never happens at home. Because the screen's not big enough at home and your dishwasher's running and you, you've you got your phone and, you know, you see something in the movie yeah. and you want to look it up on your phone. So you look it up on your phone and like all of that. I, I just got lost in the movie and all of a sudden it was over and I was like, what? Um, it was Edward Scissorhands, which is a great movie, which holds up. It's early Tim Burton and it's really solid. Nice. Apparently Alec Burt. Apparently, Alec Baldwin hates his performance and hates the movie, which I find insane because he's great in it. <laughs> I know. It's ridiculous. Um, but it was a thoroughly magic evening. I didn't know this, but because I've never been to a drive-in, they but um, they broadcast the movie over a radio signal, and so and apparently I didn't know, but radio doesn't use very much power in your car, so you can have the radio on in your car for two hours and still start your car at the end. Like it doesn't drain your battery so much. It's not like lights where if you left your lights right. on for two hours, your battery would be dead. So. We all just sat there. We tuned our radios to one station to listen to Edward Scissorhands through the speakers, things I didn't know, and watched as Edward Scissorhands in the theater with 200 people in a parking lot out in Dix Hills, not far from John Coltrane's house in Long Island, watching um, Edward Scissorhands. And yeah, not a theater. It was outside, but like a theatrical experience. A, this movie is running on its time and I can't pause it and I'm going to get immersed in in watching it and I'm going to give myself over to it and the screen is going to be ginormous and fill my field of vision. I mean, almost fill my windshield. Um, and <laughs> it, you know, I think that's really important. I also, I mean, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to hundreds of movies watched at the New Beverly Theater over my decade in LA. I watched so many double features there, especially in film school. And then the other thing that sticks out is uh, the Egyptian used to run the Godfather one and two back to back on New Year's Eve. <laughs> and my friend Charlene cool. and I went, I think a couple times it would start at noon and it would end at six. So, you, you know, it was either New Year's Eve or New Year's day. You'd just spend like six hours watching Godfather movies in the Egyptian and it's magic. And 
So, you know, Egyptian, New Beverly, and a parking lot in Long Island. Theatrical <laughs> the theatrical experience that I guess I would pick for this segment would be I saw a screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, when I was, uh, I don't know, maybe 14, 15. Um, when I lived in Italy, I lived like, I grew up overseas. And so a lot of times when I'd go to theaters, I'd be watching something with subtitles, like the film would be in English and they do subtitles or it would be dubbed. Um, so I watched a lot of, I watched a lot of, uh, films dubbed in a different language, uh, in my formative years, uh, except for Rocky Horror Picture Show which I saw in Italy and um, they decided not to dub that one because it would just, I mean, you know, all the signal yeah. and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the Rocky Horror Picture Show is such a cool film to see with an audience because it's like a cult hit that people will dress up and people will get up and participate when they do like the different segments of the movie. And I think people had brought a few things to throw in the air. I never heard of the movie and I was, you know, like I said, maybe 14, it would have been in the 90s. And uh, I just remember thinking, like, what is this? <laughs> and I thought it was awesome. And I was thinking that I'd never really considered the – it was the first time I ever saw, like, a film that people had seen before and had, you know, it had translated to other parts of their lives and they were, like, interpreting. It was, like, fans interpreting the film yeah. in the screening. And I, I'd never seen that anything like that before and I thought it was so much fun. And so, yeah, so that, that would be mine, Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's some, I have no idea what theater in Italy, circa like 1997 or eight, maybe. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, that was, um, that is one of the, the unique instances of where the movie, the theatrical experience becomes a weird fan interpretation. Yeah. Um, you guys pick good ones. I, <laughs> mine, I, I have had a lot of special theatrical experiences. It's hard to pick one, but since we're talking about the value of theaters, Mine, the one that stands out the most is that I didn't know anything about this. I used, like Charles, I went to the New Beverly Theater all the time. I lived close to it. And this was before Quentin Tarantino saved it. And, and it's sort of, it's still alive and well. And hopefully we'll be back to showing movies soon. But this, in these days, it was just these cheap double features, um, whatever prints they could get their hands on. And, I went to see a lot of classics there and I saw the last picture show, which I knew nothing about when I saw it. I hadn't heard of it. I didn't know anything about the movie. I didn't know about the book. I didn't know anything. And it's rare that you go to a classic movie or it's, I should restate this. It's rare that I would ever go to a classic movie and have zero knowledge of the thing going in. And it was just one of those times where from the moment it started, I was sort of like, oh shit like this is this is special like this is the real deal you know and it's such a theatrical movie because it's black and white it's vast and the space of the canvas of the screen is used in that way and it's simple and it's about i mean the title itself but it's about a, a bygone era or the passage of time which i think kind of embodies the the longing, the sadness maybe about the change. Um, and I came out of that movie much the way you described, Charles, with um, coming away from your 
drive-in i came out of that movie like looking around because you know the end of the movie i think even the last frame it's not a spoiler to say it's like a movie theater on a desolate street and i came out of that movie on this street this little revival house and i was like i was like in i felt like i was in the space the mind space the physical space it was uh transformative and i it stuck with me you know the experience and that that's also like how often do you see a movie anymore and there's like four days go by and you're still kind of in it. Like, I mean, the other time I had that recently, the most recent movie I saw in a theater was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where I, for days I was still like, God, I feel like I'm still in that movie. But that's what a theater does, I think. I think it really puts you there. Yeah, I got that from Once Upon a Time as well and Last Picture Show at the New Bev. And I've never gotten that feeling from a home screening where I'm stuck in a movie <laughs> or like, or like the aura of a movie is something I'm bathing in for three or four days later. Like I've never gotten that at home, only in theaters. Um, so let's plug our pluggables. I'm Oakley Anderson Moore, and you can read my articles up on nofilmschool.com. Check out my Instagram handle at Oakley Louise. And if you've got a TV set with some bunny ears, you can catch my documentary Brave New Wild playing on public television across the country. Uh, you can follow me on the Twitters and the Instagrams at Charles Hain. Those are the two socials that I participate in, although I'm like close to quitting both of them at all times. Um, and you can check out my work at charleshain.com and uh, my latest web series, saltypirate.tv. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find out about everything we spoke of here at nofilmschool.com. Read more. You can contact us at editor at nofilmschool.com or ask at nofilmschool.com. Ask us questions. Send us comments. Let us know how you think we're doing. We love to hear from you, even when it's negative. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Like our Facebook page. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a comment. Share it with your friends. Be sure to check out on the website this week. It's Prime Week on Amazon. So we have tons of deals for filmmakers that we're putting out there. And uh, if you haven't checked that out already, be sure to check it out before the week is up. Thanks so much for listening. 